Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 19th, 2018, and my guest is economist and author Arnold Kling. His most recent appearance on Econ Talk was earlier this year in March, discussing economics for the 21st century. Our topic for today is a recent essay of Arnold's at Medium.com called Human Beings Are Social. Arnold, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Now, the opening lines of your essay read, Human, human beings are social, but that does not invalidate economics or justify socialism. Now, I'm not so sure about the economics part of that statement, and I want to come back to that in a little bit. But I want to focus on where you turn next, which is to our tribal nature. Uh, talk about what you mean by our tribalism and how it tells us something about the evolution of, uh, of humanity and human cooperation. Okay, so – uh, we can talk about us being social in a couple of senses, and I, I want to get to both, but the essay mostly talks about uh, our kind of our moral sense and our, uh, our, our moral world. And I claim that our moral world is basically tribal, that uh, if, if something if, if we see something that sort of threatens or is a problem, with somebody who we recognize as being, you know, a relative or a very close friend, we react more strongly than uh, if the same thing's happening to a stranger. So I give the example of somebody says, you know, I, oh, I just lost my wallet. Can I borrow $100 to get through the day? Well, if that's your cousin, you're, you're probably willing to do that. If that's a total stranger, you're, you're not. And there's... Um, and I think there's the main reason for that. You could give a cognitive story, but I think the main reason is is this: you just have a more, you know, stronger sense of feeling for someone that you're you're close to. I have to so, say, I have to say that uh, having been in New York recently and approached by someone uh, that they needed money to buy a bus ticket and they'd lost their wallet, a stranger, I. I Unfortunately, many of the times I've been approached that way, I, I had the intense perception that it was a lie. Um, they just wanted some yeah. money, which is okay. Uh, I, I, I do give money occasionally to strangers on the street, but um, the people who actually lose their wallet and really do need $20 or $40 to get home – uh, it's been ruined for them <laughs> by yeah, people right. it, who, it, who who have free ridden on that uh, emotional urge that I do occasionally have to help people. Right. That may not be the best example to illustrate pure tribalism because you're right. There's just it's more of a cognitive issue. You don't you don't really necessarily believe somebody uh, who's a stranger. Um, although that you know in some sense that you could trace that to tribalism, but. Um, so the ba- but my basic point is that we have very strong moral instincts, you know, vis-a-vis a family. Um, you know, maybe a, a better way to, to talk about this is uh, if I'm 
you know, give special favoritism. You know, if if I'm willing to uh, stay home and take care of my own child when the child is sick, but I'm not willing to do that for someone else's child, no one would begrudge me that. You know, everyone says that that that's perfectly moral thing. Normal. If I'm in a um, if I'm in a business and I give a job to my child that I don't wouldn't give to to somebody else, you know, let's say I'm in a big organization or I'm in government, that that's very immoral. Uh, so there's a difference between how morality takes place that is appropriate at a tribal level, family level versus you know organizational level. And how did this? Tribalism, which uh, I think everyone concedes is uh, is real. How did this tribalism limit human creativity and prosperity for most of human history? Okay, so my view is that for a very long time, you know, sort of the first, you know, several hundred thousand years of, that, that human beings walked the earth, we, we, we operated in tribes – and we learned how to cooperate in tribes. And humans cooperate much better at a group level, you know, 50 people or so, than I think any other animal. Uh, we, we were able to teach each other. We were able to train each other. We were able to communicate with each other uh, and just <laughs> co- cooperate in much more sophisticated ways than other, uh, than other species. And so, but that, but we learned how to do it at this tribal level, at a level where we could recognize one another. Um, so that's you know, that's how we developed um, such you know strong tribal moral instincts, which um, it became much more of a challenge. And I think we started to solve this challenge only, let's say, fifteen thousand years ago, um, to cooperate in much larger groups of people and so the you know the first you know large states the large large organizations whatever you'd call them um seem to emerged about 15,000 years ago and they were very hierarchical the way we cooperated was that somebody was in charge and that person was in charge of uh highly armed highly disciplined um, functionaries who then uh, passed down the orders of the leader to uh, to the to the ordinary people in the organ in the uh, in the state. And what was wrong with that? Why did that? Well, nothing was wrong with that compared to what happened before. In that it was, you know, it enabled large agricultural societies to emerge. It enabled empires to emerge. Um, they probably was they, they accumulated probably more surplus wealth than the people who were doing hunting and gathering. Uh, they were probably able to specialize more and uh, achieve more uh, you know, better economic outcomes that way. But uh, you know, around you know, at least within the last few hundred years, we've discovered better ways than just sort of these hierarchical, you know, quasi-slave societies. We discovered. Uh, market capitalism and uh, limited government democracy 
these uh, you know more modern institutions, which allowed us to prosper much more and and bring and have a much more equal distribution of power and give people individuals more autonomy. I'm going to bring in Adam Smith here. Um, we're going to bring in a couple insights of Smith through in this conversation, but one of them comes from uh, the Wealth of Nations. You know, he said the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, and my version of that is that. If you take the 100 most talented people on the face of the earth, I'll let you choose them. Yeah. Uh, and I'll put you on, a, on a, a desert island, but a desert island that has a lot of resources. Uh, you know, it can have whatever you want as its endowment. It could have oil and steel and, uh, and iron. And, well, probably not steel. I mean, iron, iron, yeah, iron and coal and aluminum and uh, forests. And, and you're going to be really poor. Uh, I don't care how talented those hundred people are. If you can only interact economically with a hundred people, you cannot leverage the kinds of specialization that create a modern standard of living. Um, and, and you can real, you realize that when you start thinking about who those hundred people would be. Um, you know, yeah. you think of the hundred most successful people in the world, uh, and you can measure that in different ways. None of them knows how to plant wheat. What? Right, none, none of them, them knows. knows. Right, Jeff Bezos, LeBron James, Adele, yeah. uh, Tom Hanks, um, Warren Buffett. You, there might be one or two of those you'd put in your hundred. Elon Musk. I, you know, I don't know who would be in that top one hundred, but it almost doesn't matter actually. Um, yeah. Except it wouldn't be me. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's for sure. But but it's not. You don't have to give it a lot of thought because. The characteristics that make people successful in 2018 are not the the characteristics that made people successful when they lived in these small bands of hunter gatherers. And I see the explosion of human prosperity as resulting from the enormous expansion in trading opportunities that takes place uh, about three hundred years ago, and that continues until. Now we trade with 7 billion people rather than the people around the corner. Many of you have heard my joke before. You know, we tried by local once. It's called the Middle Ages. You know, when, when you're only trading with people nearby, you, you can't be rich. Um, and obviously, tribalism is a terrible barrier to trading with people beyond your group because you don't trust them. And without the state or another mechanism to – uh, coerce trust, to to enforce trust, to make people feel comfortable about investment, uh, I'd say delaying payment until, uh, you know, or accepting payment in advance. Th- these things can't be achieved without either a fundamental trust or some enforcement mechanism, usually by the state or by through violence, uh, that, that could keep that going. And, and so that just, we just couldn't get off the ground in, in that way. Yeah, and, and so there's the sort of, you know, the title of human beings are social, so they're social morally, but what's sort of interesting and a bit disturbing is that there a lot of these moral norms arise, you know, arose when we were still in small bands and we weren't in these big affluent societies. And so you, uh, you develop some conflicts between the, the moral norms that develop as a tribe and, and what you would need in a modern society. But I would also say that in some sense, we're cognitively social. And that's something that people forget a lot. I think people sort of think, well, 
there's there's all this knowledge that's in my head. Therefore, you know, individual knowledge is really important. But just as your sort of trading example of you know the the island of a hundred people not being able to do much, uh, we're not island we we're not very good islands cognitively either. And if, if I, I want to recommend a couple of books, both of which I've reviewed on the Econ Live website, uh, one is The Secret of Our Success by Joe Henrich, and the other is Darwin's Unfinished Symphony by Kevin Lalonde, and maybe we'll put up links to those reviews. We will. Um, And then I want to throw a couple metaphors out there to kind of illustrate this sort of, that we're kind of cognitively social. Um, One metaphor is you can imagine yourself, imagine each human being is having uh, hardware, an operating system, and application software. So if you think about eating, Okay, your hardware is your digestive system. Your operating system would be kind of your natural cravings and instincts, uh, some of which are very generic, some of which are specific to different people. Like different people have, I think, a different genetic makeup that makes them dislike cilantro, for example. I've heard that. Um, And, you know, so that's your operating system. tells you sort of, you know, when to eat and when you're hungry and so on. Uh, and what what foods you you're inclined to prefer, but then if you think about really most of your eating, like where you look for food, how food is prepared for you, what you choose to eat, it's all cultural. I mean, there's just this huge cultural element in the, in the sort of the application layer of of eating. And I think that's just true for a lot of your behaviors that that there you're not born with a desire for pizza or you know, or a choice to eat pizza at certain times that's not you're not born with that you you learn it culturally and, and you learn an awful lot culturally so that's one metaphor the other metaphor i want to use is sort of the an archaeological mound you know when archaeologists look at very old cities like jericho what they see are mounds so at the top layer they see the most recent people who are living there the artifacts that they've left and then below that are the artifacts of the people who may have lived a couple hundred years earlier and then below that artifacts from a few hundred years before that and so on that's a mound an archaeological mound and we have this huge mound <clears throat> of cultural stuff you know artistic stuff scientific stuff religious stuff um social norms, political institutions. So we just this gigantic mound that none of us can explore all of it, but we're all um, you know sort of what what's in our heads is sort of what we've encountered in the parts of the mound that we've explored. And that but it's very much not limited individuals. It really it it comes from everyone around us. And to take the counter story um, Tarzan, uh, the concept of Edgar Rice Burroughs that I think he's the author, uh, that, that a human being could be raised in the wild uh, into adulthood without any of this cultural um, baggage and instead be given the baggage of the wild, of nature, uh, and how that person might be different and could that person be acculturated and and how would they assimilate into a modern cultural society? 
Um, and it, as you point out, the number of things that we carry with us, the, the, that those bags, the baggage that we have, and baggage actually usually has a negative connotation, something you're, quote, stuck with. But here it, it certainly doesn't have that connotation, although some of it's negative. We are talking about the incredibly rich array of attitudes and uh, I would call them rules of thumb, things that are go-to heuristics heuristics that we have that make life really easy that we don't think about at all. And I I think there's a tendency to think of it as technology. So so the idea that, you you know, we mentioned I I flubbed and said, you know, steel instead of iron, you know, if – if we forgot how to – if all of our our steel factories or foundries and steel factories were destroyed by some weird uh, reaction from space and now we had to start from scratch, oh my gosh, well, well somebody knows something about it and we try to find the person who made you know some piece of it or, again, to take a, the classic example, the pencil. If we didn't have any pencils and someone said, well, how do you make one? That know-how is so disembodied. It's so spread out across thousands and thousands of people that the smartest person in the world would take forever, <laughs> De- yeah. a decade, to make a, a, anything equivalent to a, a pencil that gets turned out uh, by the second in, in the hundreds of millions in, across the world. And so all that that knowledge that's not in our head, that isn't um, – embodied in our own brains is just sort of in the atmosphere and we sort of drink it in without appreciating how rich it is and it doesn't just include technology like how to say plain cedar to make it look in a format that you can turn it into a pencil but a cedar tree but rather all the social norms which i think is the the part that's even harder to see all those social norms that we have accepted and been acculturated to to expect in the people around us. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff's just extremely important. And uh, I think as economists, we're kind of trained to ignore it, uh, to, you know, it's, you know, if, if the difference between an economist and a sociologist is, you know, the economist really treats people as if they were completely atomistic individuals. And that's the way we, we write down models, you know, an individual utility function and so on. Uh, sociologist says, oh, this is all socially determined. I think the sociological view is closer to correct. And, and, and that led me to kind of, I was pondering this the other day, why, if, if the sociologists are basically right, why does economics seem to work better? And I think it's just because we do better at using the caterus paribus assumption. That's the other thing is equal. So we'll hold all the, a lot of things equal. That includes you know, social norms, institutions, and so on. And we'll make statements that hold as long as other things are equal. And, and we get a lot out of that. And I'm afraid the sociologist doesn't make good use of that. So the world to the sociologist may look more like, either looks like a blooming, buzzing confusion or they, you know, take this uh, gender oppressor oppressed model as their hammer and and hammer everything with it, whether it's a nail or not. I don't know. I, 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 but it's an interesting question: why why sociology doesn't dominate economics? Uh, and it sometimes it's, it seems like the other way around. Yeah, I, I would say, by the way, that uh, uh, a, perhaps a more 
an easier translation of that Latin phrase, which I always pronounce ceteris paribus, such so a probably oh, is not yeah, correct. Probably right. No, I'm probably you're probably right about how it's pronounced. But when we translate as all things equal, I think that's a little bit misleading. We really mean all things held constant, not changing. That's what we yeah. mean by equal, meaning the environment we're in is the same as it was 10 minutes ago, but the price changed, and therefore people respond by changing their behavior. I'm not sure yeah. that, by the way, that I mean, in the second part of this conversation, I'm going to go on a rant uh, where I think economics has gone wrong. And I don't think sociology maybe is better, but uh, I, I do think that uh, the reason I think we look fairly successful, besides the fact that we tell our stories to ourselves, and of course <laughs> we're going to look successful uh, that way, uh, I think it was George Stigler who said, there is only one social science and we are its practitioners, meaning um, – maximizing well-being in a world of self-interest with limited incomes and uh, and, and a world of prices. Uh, but part of it's we, we fool ourselves, but perhaps. But part of it is also the fact that our focus is exceedingly narrow. Our, our focus is um, people's economic behavior, their their financial behavior, their whether they take a job or not take a job, um, what wage they earn. These are very concrete and explicit things that in many ways don't get at the reality, as I'll rant in a minute. But but I think that's part of the reason I think we do a little bit better than sociologists in terms of prediction or creating a, a framework for thinking about a complicated world. Yeah, but I do think that this other things equal or other things held constant is, is a big deal so that um, you know when it works, like when we're you know looking at a – Price change and how it affects demand, or something like that. It 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 works well, but it really only works for small periods of time and in very stylized examples. But you know, if you try to expand to larger questions, like uh, here's one that you've thought about, tried to work with a lot, which is um, how have uh, sort of average incomes and standards of living evolved over time. And, you know, if you try to do that over a 40 or 50 year period, you know, the last 40 or 50 years in the U.S., there's so many things that have not been held constant that it's really hard to get a coherent answer. And, you know, it, we, 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 you know people will throw around answers, but they're very controversial and they're very unsettled. And I think it's because this other things held constant assumption that we – that kind of – enables us to make accurate statements just doesn't hold in that setting. Yeah, and you've written on it too. I, I think it's uh, it's a great example because I think actually, I forget how you described it a few seconds ago, but you made it sound like it, you said it's very controversial or it's unsettled. Uh, I think it's totally settled except for like you, me, and about seven other people. Uh, <laughs> everyone has decided that the received wisdom is such that the average American's made very little progress over the last 40 years. And when I am confronted with that, those data and I and and try to respond to it, one of my first answers is exactly what you just said. Well, gee, you didn't take account of this, 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 and this, where those are things that have changed a lot in the last 40 years. So besides the performance of the economy in helping uh, people stand a living, you, you also would want to take account of, say – uh, the marriage rate, and you'd also want to take account of how we measure inflation, and you'd also want to take account of the composition of the labor force, and you'd want to take account of general demographic changes. 
education and so on if you're trying to assess whether the economy lifts all boats, say, or whether a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think, um, you know, I'll put up a couple of videos that I've done to to try to explore those issues. And I know you have put up an essay or two of yours that looks at it, but it's just extremely, uh, to me, it's just very complicated. And yet people talk about it as if it's, you know, open and shut, you know, we just, yeah. oh, we just measured it. We, it's easy. Yeah. And, you know, th- the fact that things change <laughs> ruins everything. You know, people, people, yeah. people make blanket statements about say the effect of some food on, on your health or whatever, and and you always my always my thought always is uh, uh, you know correlation isn't causation, and and most people's reaction is like keep quiet. We have got a good thing yeah. going here. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last part of your essay, and then I want to give my rant in a minute, take us in a different direction. But the last part of your essay, you say the following: you say none of us should underestimate the importance of cumulative cultural intelligence as reflected in the social norms and formal institutions that enable human cooperation in large-scale society. Uh, you want to flesh that out a little bit? You want to talk about some of what those norms might be? As I, yeah. I think about those a lot, and I think, uh, not enough, but, but I do mm-hmm. think about the, the role that our expectations play about how people will interact with us. What, what do you have in mind when you make that statement? Well, a, a number of things. First of all, just cooperation isn't automatic or normal. Uh, cooperation is, you know, as I've said before, in, in animals you don't see much, but you, they, um, you know, a chimpanzee never learned how to bake bread. Um, it's not that chimpanzees are stupid, I don't think. I think it's that they cannot, they don't have the tools to communicate with one another to try things out to re- record the results, report the results, and so on. Um, but we do, and so you know, we know how to bake, bake bread. It's, again, you don't, you're not born knowing how to bake bread. You, you have to learn it from somebody. Um, and you know, we've, got, we've accumulated cookbooks and all sorts of tools and implements for doing it and so on. And that's... Um, but that all comes from this remarkable ability to cooperate, and the, the um, and as you point out, cooperation up to a level of you know fifty people or a hundred people, like you, you have in a tribe, gives you a very limited set of people that you can special that can specialize, and so it really put constrains how far a society can advance. So the the uh, the first revolution in cooperation that you know, takes place about fifteen thousand years ago. You know, maybe religion plays a part of it. Maybe some kind of military technology plays a part of it. But somehow, we we get to the point where, uh, you know, you can have you know tens of thousands of people uh, in a in a cooperative relationship with one another, uh, and that's a remarkable thing. And it takes a lot of uh, in social enforcement of moral norms. Uh, Let me take a prosaic example that I've I've, I've used before, maybe not here. Uh, If you go to a food court, and how do you know that you can just walk up to any stand and take a napkin, but you can't walk up there and pour yourself a soda? Yeah. I mean, that's just, just, you know, that's cultural knowledge. It's just norms that have just built up over time. Uh, There are all sorts. If you sat down and observed... 
you know, people at a food court, you'd observe all sorts of social norms going on. You know, the people throwing away their their stuff after they're done, returning their trays. Uh, the person uh, who's, you know, standing at the cash register asking if you'd like uh, a soda with that. And just the whole, um, you know, all sorts of rituals and so on with, with that. Um, so there's just an, an awful lot that we, again, take for granted that, again, in Caterus Paribus, we hold equal as we describe economic behavior. Um, an awful lot of stuff that, that, makes, uh, that, that makes social cooperation possible and makes economic activity possible. You know, just to take even more prosaic example, uh, you know, what side of the road to drive on? Yeah. There's a norm in the United States that you drive on the right side, and there's a norm in the United Kingdom you drive on the left side. They're both fine as long as everybody knows what the norm is. And if they don't know, it's a nightmare. Uh, one of the great – I think the the power of this is to just enormously economize on, on what economists call transaction costs. You know, your example of the napkin, if you had to ask for everything that you do in life um, – if you had to ask permission rather than forgiveness, uh, you'd spend enormous time asking. And you don't have to because you learn what's okay and what's not okay, what's accepted, when it's okay to cut in line uh, and when it's not okay to cut in line, when it's okay to leave a task undone for, for the other party. I've used the example here before when you sell a house. Certain expectations about selling a house, house is an extremely large transaction and uh, contract for selling houses full of all kinds of details about what expectations are that are written out and explicit. But there's a whole other set that's not written out, that's not explicit, that's implicit, that is probably very different in different cultures. And we all interact with each other and we're bumping into each other economically, socially, uh, in ways that are much easier in, in America, for example, because we have certain expectations of trust. Um, I've, I don't know if I've ever told the story before, but my wife and I uh, were gonna, had the opportunity to spend a night in uh, Big Sur, a beautiful part of California. Problem was, um, there was a two-night minimum. We could only stay for one night, and I didn't have time to get the owner a check. So the owner said, that's okay. Just, just I'll leave the door unlocked. I mean, think about this, this sequence of events <laughs> in most of human history. I'll leave the door unlocked. Uh, when you leave, she said, I'm out of town anyway, so don't worry about sending me the money. She said, I'll, I'll leave the door unlocked, and when, when you get there, uh, when you leave, just leave the money in cash on the table. <laughs> and uh, my cleaning lady will pick it up. And that's just – I mean that's just – as an economist, I, I, I said fine, of course. But as an economist, I'm kind of horrified by that. There's so many places that story can go wrong. Uh, obviously, the cleaning lady can pocket the money. Obviously, I can le- not leave the money and claim the cleaning lady took it. Obviously, the cleaning lady could give the money to the owner, and the owner could say I never got it. Uh, obviously, I could say after t- after only one night, even though I promised I'd pay for the two-night minimum, I could say, well, that was that's not fair. That's <laughs> absurd. I'll just leave one night. That's enough. And so all those things could have gone wrong. And it's I, I think I write about this in my, my Adam Smith book, the – when I laid the money down, a, a large number of $20 bills for one night, uh, I took a photo of it with my phone. I still have that photo, <laughs> which is a stupid thing to do, of course, because I could just put the money back in my pocket. But I felt 
good about that, and, not the phone, but I, I felt good about yeah. the, the experience. And I walked out without really worrying deeply that this was going to go awry. And it did not. And, you know, I contacted the owner a couple of days later, said, you get the money? Yes. Thanks. I had a great time. Appreciate it. And the ability to trust the amount of social capital that was built into our interactions, including the maid who I never met, who, you know, worked for money for this uh, owner of the property, the amount of social interaction there and the amount of trust and, and social capital was enormous. And without it, my wife and I wouldn't have had a, a wonderful time in a beautiful place, and the owner wouldn't have had the X hundred dollars to spend on something that that she held of value. And those kind of transactions happen fairly. I'm going to tell one more, by the way. This just try, this fascinates me, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but then you can comment on the the Big Sur story too if you want. But um, I the ability to return things in America. It is extraordinary. So if you buy a product and you're not happy with it and you return it, uh, usually get all your money back. They don't even just – in the old days, you might get a credit. Now you get all your money back in so many settings. And even if it's a little bit bruised up or damaged, if you didn't like it, they're very eager to give you your money back. And, of course, that's lovely, but what it means is that everything is more expensive that has that promise behind it. And most of us are happy to pay that premium to make sure that we get something we that we're – passionate love and it's extraordinary to me that that's become the norm the norm is and of course it's exploitable people do exploit it they will return things that they've worn for six weeks that they aren't planning to buy in the beginning it's you know i think that's immoral even though the company will take it back and i just find that just an a, a revolutionary uh experience in retail that that certainly wasn't true 20 years ago yeah, I think there are a lot of revolutionary things just coming from the Amazon model of delivery. You know, just the notion that it's going to be left on your front stoop for hours. Yeah. And no one's going to disturb it and you're going to be – and uh, you're not going to claim that it didn't get there even though it did. And I mean, that, Yeah, you're, you're, there's just so many things that can go wrong with that. But uh, And it's just not simple – it's not simple economics that explains how the that takes place. It you know it's really a sort of a complex. You you might be able to come up with some, some a repeat game story, but some of it yeah. I think just goes beyond that. Yeah. It's just it's just irrational behavior that fortunately, you know, individ, maybe individually irrational, but collectively allows us to uh, enjoy much better commerce. Right, if we all exploited it, if we all lied about whether – I mean, I've had the experience where I no, – Not I've, even all of us. If, even, enough. Even if, if enough of us yeah. exploited it, it would fall apart. Yeah, I was just doing a reductio ad absurdum there. But yeah, so I, I find it fascinating. At times, I've, talk, I've called a retailer uh, or emailed a retailer, and I say, I didn't like this, or it, did, it, didn't, it came damaged. And they say, we'll send you another one. And <laughs> I say, well, what do I do with the – oh, just keep it. Yeah. It's like it's not worth it. For them, it's yeah. a small item, obviously, that I'm talking yeah. about. But, but the potential there for abuse, of course, and it, what you're referring to is irrational. Is this? Idea, and I, I'm going to push back a little bit. I know what you mean, but uh, this idea that, well, if people are self-interested, they should just take advantage of that. And of course, the answer why they don't is they feel guilty. Uh, they have a conscience. They think they might think about the consequences if they if everyone did it which is Kant's um, categorical imperative and you'd ruin it for everybody of course many people do cheat on those opportunities do exploit them and ruin it or make it more expensive for for others and um 
Uh, but it's amazing that not everybody does. And that's the puzzle. The puzzle is that, that yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. No, we, we, we are not the rational economic man that, that we depict ourselves to be. So I'm now that's that's a good um, segue for my rant. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take your opening line. Uh, human beings are social, and I'm gonna take it in a, a different direction and a, a different place uh, in terms of thinking about economics. You say um, uh, that does not invalidate economics. I, I, I'm gonna I don't think it invalidates economics, but I'm gonna suggest that our textbook, classroom, and sort of back of the envelope. Um, way we think about people is is missing something important um so if we think about the essential economic uh model of individual behavior that that you and i were taught as undergraduates certainly as graduate students is that human beings maximize something we call it utility uh it's it's a short it's a it's a a vague and colorless word to describe well-being satisfaction Sometimes you might call it happiness. And in the economic models that we write down, we say you, utility, is a function of usually X1, X2, dot, 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 X X sub N, a bunch of stuff. And most of that stuff is stuff. It's um, purchases. And it's a model that was used to generate the demand for X1, the demand for X2, the demand for shoes, the demand for wheat. Uh, it's downward sloping, that demand curve, um, which, I, you know, we go through a lot of in the classroom. I stopped doing it, but for a long time, you, I used to teach this way, and I think many people still do. You go through a lot of indifference curves and budget lines to generate the demand curve. After a while, I realized I could just say, let's assume demand slopes downward, that people buy more stuff when it gets less expensive and buy less of stuff when it gets more expensive. Uh, but and it might be affected by the price of complements or substitutes or income, and we do that model in, in class, and then we start talking about and, and underlying that. By the way, is is a, tut, a sort of tautological claim that more is preferred to less. Uh, that, that people want they'd rather have more food, and if they get to the point where food becomes a negative, we'll just say higher quality food. Um, and and if it does become a negative, you say, well, that's not a, then it's not something you want people want more of. <laughs> people want only want more of things that are good. That's a bad, uh, like trash. Trash is a bad. We want less trash. Uh, and with trash, less is preferred to more. But for most things that we have out in the world, more is preferred to less. But we can't have everything we want. We've got a limited amount of income. And anybody who's been in an introductory economics class or taught one knows knows what I'm talking about. That's a rather extraordinary way to think about human well-being, I would suggest. It certainly ignores the fact that human beings are social, uh, your opening sentence. So uh, I just happened to look up uh, Gary Becker's 1974 paper, The Theory of Social Interactions, before our conversation, Arnold. His opening, he opens with two quotes. The first is from John Donne, the poet. No man is an island, island. which is another way of saying human beings are social. And then even more dramatically, he, he, he quotes Seneca, who says, man is a social animal. The only difference is that when Seneca was writing, or even when Gary Becker was writing in 1974, man meant human beings. So now we're sensitive to that, so we say human beings. So now I'm going to read the opening of, of Becker's um, article. This is the theory of so- social uh, interactions. He says the following. 
Before the theory of consumer demand began to be formalized by Jevons, Valra, Marshall, Menger, and others, economists, economists frequently discussed what they considered to be the basic determinants of wants. For example, Bentham discusses about 15 basic kinds of pleasures and pains. All other pleasures and pains are presumed to be combinations of the basic set. And Marshall briefly discusses a few basic determinants of wants before moving on to his well-known presentation of marginal utility theory. What is relevant and important for present purposes is the prominence given to the interactions among individuals. Bentham mentions, quote, the pleasures of being on good terms with him or them, the pleasures of a good name, the pleasures resulting from the view of any pleasures supposed to be possessed by the beings who may be the objects of benevolence, and the pleasures resulting from the view of any pain supposed to be suffered by the beings who may become the objects of malevolence. Nassau Sr. said that, quote, the desire for distinction is a feeling which if we consider its universality and its constancy, that it affects all men and at all times, that it comes with us from the cradle and never leaves us till we go into the grave, may be pronounced to be the most powerful of all human passions. So this is the desire for distinction, the desire to be ad- admired. And of course, many listeners will think of Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. That's what we desire. We don't desire iPhones and shoes and wheat. We desire the respect of the people around us, the admiration of the people around us. We want to matter. We want to be feel like we're significant. And that paper of Becker's and some of his other work, he wrote a book called The Treatise on the Family, which also dealt with the social aspects within the family. They had virtually, I would argue, little or no impact on how economists – uh, think about economic well-being generally. They were clever. They helped him win the Nobel Prize. In his hands, they were an extraordinary, uh, powerful tool for thinking about choice in certain settings. Didn't really change the way economists look at the world. And in fact, I would say most of the modern perspective on this is a what I think is a ghastly intellectual concept called a social welfare function, which purports to aggregate utility, well-being across individuals, being willing to trade off uh, individual well-being against someone else's uh, through some public policy, an optimal tax rate, and so on. And that brings us you know, to the happiness literature, a question of whether income makes us happy, whether more income continues to make us happy, whether we hit some plateau. But all of this totally ignores the social side of our lives and the argument, I think, would be, well, that's because the social side of our lives doesn't involve money, uh, and therefore it's not about the demand for this, that, or the other, and therefore it's not about economic choices. But I think it really misses something important. And I, Just to take the obvious examples, there's no role in the way we teach our students for patriotism. There's no role about national pride, ethnic pride, religious pride. There's no discussion of meaning. We have no – we have nothing to say about what gives people their deepest and most abiding satisfactions. To take an extreme, economic theory the way it's taught – and I think this is obviously false, but it's taught this way even though this example might be ignored. Uh, if I work hard and I learn how to do something of value to other human beings and that allows me to earn an income of $50,000 a year and I use that to take care of my family – or myself, either one, but certainly in the, in the case of my family, I would be 
proud and feel good about that. According to economics, if I could get that $50,000 a year through some other mechanism without having to work, I'd be better off because I'd have the 50000 and then I'd have leisure, extra time to do something I valued more than whatever I was working on. And that it wouldn't matter whether it was a legacy from a rich uncle. It wouldn't matter whether it was a welfare payment from the state. Uh, it wouldn't matter if I was a thief <laughs> and I was able to find a way to, to hack into people's bank accounts and take $50,000. Uh, those are all considered, quote, the same. They all produce the same level of utility. And we say, oh, well, we could, we could complicate the model. We, we could you know, jazz it up to include how we feel about other people or how they feel about us. But the bottom line is economic way of thinking has little or nothing to say about friendship, about love, about the deep, deep satisfactions that we get beyond the fact that I can text you across town on my phone, which is lovely. But, and then the question is, does it really does it matter? Is it, is it important that economics ignores these social satisfactions, the, the respect that Bentham and, and Marshall and, and Adam Smith talked about, do those matter? Or is it just, oh, well, that's a different, that's sociology. And I would argue it, it matters a lot. And I think a lot of what we're arguing about in America and in Europe right now is about things that, have, that economists typically ignore. And so we really have nothing productive to say about many of these issues. And um, I think it, it goes a little, little further than that, and then I'll let you respond. I, I think by teaching this model of utility maximization, we have privileged growth and income and uh, financial matters above many others. Now, of course, you can hold those other things constant, as we talked about earlier, and just say, well, if I've got a lot of friends and I'm really respected – and I feel important and I, I have a deep sense of belonging to either my social communities or my religious communities or my ethnic communities. And then I've got more money too. I'll be better off. And that's all we mean in economics. But sometimes they conflict. Sometimes they, you have to make choices about trading off those social values. You have to decide where to work and what kind of respect you're going to get from people around you depending on what job you take and what you're producing and what your skills are and what your services that you provide to others and whether those are truly deeply human and beneficial things or whether they're just quote things you make money at that are maybe aren't so so great and so i think by privileging this maximization model and of course Deirdre McCluskey is uh called this the max u model maximization of utility but makes it sound like a person this view of of human beings as calculating machines as maximizers as uh taking in inputs like stuff we buy and then producing outputs like happiness doesn't that somehow ultimately having taught that over and over again and absorbed it as students over and over again does that make us maybe ignore some of those other things and start to think that we can Manipulate people, create that social, you know, imagine that social welfare function where I have the insight, which I think it's not true, but the insight into who should gain and who should lose from this policy and that we know how to, by manipulating the levers and dials, create human well-being. And I, I think we're kind of missing out there. I think we're really grotesquely on the wrong track. So that's that's my rant. And um, Okay, so – Go ahead. Uh, a few thoughts. And uh, I should mention one, is, one last thing. Yeah, I, I went to the University of Chicago for my PhD. Arnold went to MIT. Uh, our, MIT in those years, 
it's more so now, and Chicago is much more so now, uh, very focused on mathematical uh, visions of these kind of decision-making. Uh, and that's the path economics has been on for the last 25 years, maybe the last 100, uh, could argue 60 to 70 years, and maybe even longer. And I'm suggesting that maybe we've lost something. Go ahead. Okay, so just a few random thoughts. One is sort of live by caterus paribus, die by caterus paribus. <laughs> I think um, you know a defense of economic methods is to say, look, we get as far as we can holding all this, you know, social status and sociological stuff constant, and just let us be and let us do it that way. Um, but you die by that in the sense that you're right. You just you, you know you you answer certain questions very accurately or with uh, with some strong predictions. But you make strong predictions about things that ultimately become less and less interesting, perhaps, or you miss out. You you can't make predictions on interesting things. Um, another thought is you mentioned you know using economics to talk about people's decision to take a job. Um, let's take, you know, I, I have this joke that I wish one of my three daughters would work for a profit. <laughs> um, because, you know, somehow they were acculturated, I think, to take the view that working for a nonprofit is inherently morally better than working for a profit, and therefore that's what you should do. That's an interesting point of view. I mean, it's an interesting heuristic. Now, as an economist, I'd say the heuristic is, to first approximation, the most socially useful thing you can do is the thing that pays the best. I, I'm going to use the word best, not most, because, you know, you could be… Got to include some know, non-monetary have, issues. Yeah, you could have a 100-hour work week versus a 40-hour yeah. work week, whatever. Um that's true to a first approximation, but people are inclined to override that, you know, my heuristic, you know, the pays the best heuristic. Um, you know, the the reason for it being that, you know, in economic theory, if 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 you're being paid a lot to do something, then you're providing benefits. That's you know, but you know, people for good reason are are not confident in that heuristic. You know, you could be working for a company that's ripping people off or destroying the environment. Um, you know, there there are all sorts of of reasons why that heuristic might not be right. It's just I I mean I happen to think that with all the it's it's probably people probably are more skeptical of the heuristic that says you know you're most useful society if you take the best paying job. I think people are probably more skeptical of it than they should be, and probably try to override it more than they should, but it's absolutely not a perfect heuristic, and you're certainly entitled to try to come up with something else. But, but the point is, you know, people do try to come up with something else, and they, they, they do think about that. And, and these issues of you know, self-evaluation and meaning of life and all that um, absolutely matter to people. And the other point is that those... Those concepts of you know self worth of you know am I on a path that's meaningful, very much culturally determined. That that doesn't just c- come from inside you. Uh, very very much culturally related, and there will be uh, 
you know, your choices will be affected a lot by the people who you respond to most over the course of your life, your peers or your mentors or what have you. So, um, um, you know, those, the, and because that's true, you're going to see things happen that you probably wouldn't explain well with a given economic model. And, um, you know, it, it affects, I think, all sorts of things. You know, why is the why did the labor force participation rate uh, take the plunge that it did uh, starting in 2008, and why has it been declining? You know, for for many years. That's uh, I I don't think you can just sort of write down a mathematical model that tells that whole story. Yeah, I mean, I find Casey Mulligan's work very interesting. He argues relentlessly that it's changes in access to various types of welfare payments. And we had him on Econ Talk to talk about that. It's provocative work. But like you, I'm skeptical that it's capturing everything that's going on. I, I'm very confident it's not capturing everything that's going on. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's and irrelevant. It, it just doesn't capture everything. at the very least, it has to be processed through people learning from each other. I, I, you know, people just – can't, I, I just don't think all these people are capable of sitting down and doing the calculation that says, oh, I guess at the margin, I'm better off not taking a job than I am taking a job. Um, it's, I'm, my guess is it's much more contagion, that you, that you could take the same person with the same calculating ability and you put him or her a bunch you know, with peers who are committed to being in the labor force no matter what and you, versus you put them with in a setting where other people are starting to drop out of the labor force and, and sort of suggesting that that's an okay thing to do. And you get different behavior. I'm, I'm very confident of that. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a um, very sobering uh, Uber driver once who, this is about a year ago, she was uh, working part-time driving an Uber. And during the day, she was uh, worked at the unemployment office of handing out unemployment benefits and asked her what that job was like. And, you know, in theory, that job could be very meaningful, right? It could be very, very satisfying. You have people who've down on their luck, who've had tough times, they're unemployed, and you're able, it's not your money, but you're able to give them uh, some sunshine, a little bit of hope uh, and that they can be taken care of. And she said she hated the job. And I said, why? And she said, well, people come in and they yell, they curse at me and they yell at me. All day long, that they're furious or angry that the benefits aren't bigger. That that especially if she has to turn them down, that they're not eligible. They they're they're mad at her. They they think she's you know holding something back. Is is refusing to give largesse to them for personal reasons or whatever. And that would I don't know. Is that would that have been common fifty years ago, a hundred years ago? Maybe I don't know. But it does appear to have a cultural component. Uh, I want to take us uh, one other place uh, in thinking about public policy, and you know, I, I think it's obvious. You brought us back really full circle with your observation about that culture norms affect how people feel about work, and I think that's that's absolutely true. I'm just thinking about more of this issue of of being respected and, and having meaning, and where this is not a show about this. This episode is not about universal basic income, although some listeners may have noticed that it's implicit in some of the things we're talking about, whether that's a, a good idea or not. But I actually think it's something a little more more complicated, which is the following. So economists are very interested in um, 
in making the pie, the economic pie, the dollar value of goods and services as large as possible. And so when a policy comes along that makes the pie smaller, economists tend to say, well, that's inefficient because it's going to make the inefficient there very, being something very technical. It means the pie is smaller. Or they'll say that's, that's an improvement because the pie is bigger. And we tend not to worry about where the shares go. Uh, so if the pie gets bigger, uh, you know, some people are going to get maybe a lot, much bigger share. Some people might get a smaller share, though, when that pie gets bigger. And we tend to say things like, well, there's enough gain in the pie to compensate the people who get a smaller share. Now, of course, they don't get compensated, actually. But we have this sort of utilitarian, I think, idea that if the pie is bigger, we're better off in some general sense. And I, I think there's a very um, – and I taught that way for 25 years and then for, in the last five or so years of my teaching, I decided that was a, not a particularly moral or uh, informative. In fact, I, I, find, I think it's a, a uh, misleading way to think about public policy. And I, I, so when I think about trade, to take an example that's in the news these days, and I think about the case for free trade, a lot of economists – I think make the case for trade because it leads to a bigger pie. And I think that's the wrong way to think about trade. I don't think that's – because trade obviously makes – I'm talking about international trade. Trade with other nations obviously makes some people worse off. Uh, they now have to compete with other people who – and that competition harms them. And that – that so that is relevant. You can't just say, well, but the total gain is large enough. Like what kind of calculation is that? Who would ever you – know, it's like saying – Okay, in the family, uh, we're gonna we're gonna make a decision about uh, where we spend our vacation. Uh, uh, Johnny's gonna love it a lot. Susie is gonna be uh, so depressed that she's not gonna want to come out of her room for five days. But Johnny's so much happier. It's the family's better off. That's nonsense. Johnny's better off. Susie's worse off. And then we have to decide what to do. We have to make a decision. But we wouldn't just add stuff up. And economists do that all the time. So for me, you know, just to make it clear, the, the case for free trade for me is the fact that it allows people to use their skills in powerful and, and, and meaningful ways. And that when we close off opportunities for exchange and close off opportunities for trade, we actually are limiting the amount of opportunities available to people. And certainly by the next generation, those opportunities are going to be dramatically smaller if we start to close our borders to foreign goods and services. And so that people who are harmed today – they're going to be happy, even though they're harmed today, to see that their children lead richer and more meaningful lives, not financially richer necessarily, although that matters. And I, you know, I wrote an essay on this called The Human Side of Trade. I'll post it, um, but, and, and we've talked about it in passing here in the program before. But the, I don't think the standard economic way of thinking about it, of, quote, maximizing the size of the pie, is, is, is the right way to think about it. It's just wrong. Well, I, I think you're – uh, I think you're, you're arguing a bit against a straw man. I don't think there are, not, there are many economists who would hold up their hand and say, "I don't care about distributional effects." You know, you know, free trade uber alles. Um I think they might say free trade uber uber distributional effects uh, in many situations, and just sort of say, you know. They're there, they're, you know, they say, like, what, what does a national border mean? You know, why do you care about that? And you know, why do you care uh, about, you know, the steel worker whose wage goes down in the U.S. more than the steel worker whose wage goes up in China or somewhere? Anyway, there, there, there's a whole uh, 
set of of, of issues there. Um, yeah, I, I actually, yeah, I don't think that is really the the major flaw, or even necessarily a flaw, uh, in in economic analysis. I think the uh, just sort of missing just uh, I, I think the things that we miss are more these uh, the social determinants of economic outcomes so you know we you know ten years after the financial crisis i don't think there's any real consensus on you know what took place how it took place and I think part of that is there were just there was a lot of social contagion going on, and we don't we don't have a good. That's just not something we think in terms of. Um, and yeah, so yeah, there are some things that we can look at and you and analyze with our other things equal other things held constant models, and we and we get you know answers that we have a fair amount of confidence in. There are other things that we look at with those models. And we may or may not have confidence. We don't have deserved confidence. And there are lots of important questions that people might think of as something that they'd expect economists to have answers to that these other things equal story, you know, that the other things equal framework just doesn't work at at all. And that, that, that's kind of the way I would describe sort of the state of economics and sort of why um, – you know, sort of, there ought to be a broader kind of sociolo- sociology out there that isn't that doesn't doesn't conduct itself the way sociologists conduct themselves now, but which does look at the sort of broader ways in which human beings cooperate with one another, compete with one another, um, are sometimes peaceful with one another, sometimes warlike with one another. Some sometimes treat each other fairly. Sometimes don't. Those are uh, you know, th- those are very big issues. Uh, maybe they're even becoming bigger in terms of relative importance as sort of our affluence increases. I mean, I don't think a hundred years ago uh, my daughters would have been so <laughs> anti working for a profit and so uh, eager to work for nonprofits. If if uh, if the, if you know, given the difference in in uh, financial rewards and so on. Well, Gary Becker, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He was also a professor of sociology. And I suspect he had a dream and a vision that economics and sociology would merge in some sense. Uh, I think it's true that, a con- that sociologists probably use some techniques and certainly some statistical techniques that economists use, but the silos are still pretty strong. I wish Gary were still alive. It would be fun to talk to him about it. We did do an episode with him. I'll put a link to it. We also did an episode with Tyler Cowen, who argued that growth was really the only thing economists should care about, very different from what I'm suggesting here to some extent. Well, and I think Tyler's argument is a very interesting one. It's almost a teleological one where, you know, what's – what are your great great grandchildren yeah. going to care about? And the distribution of income in 2018 is going to mean zip to them. But 
whether we have grown at four, you know two percent or two and a half percent will mean enormous difference to them. You know, two and a half, you know, cumulatively over, you know, over that intervening period. So, um, you know, that's, I don't think that's a story about sort of ec- economists uh, looking at that no. max you. It, it's, no, no. It's, it's an interesting kind of story about, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll use almost a theological story. What, what, what are we try- aiming for 200, 300 years from now? Yeah, it's actually similar to my story on trade. I don't mean to suggest that yeah. somehow I'm anti-growth. I'm not. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm just trying to – I'm actually just – I'm suggesting we might want to have a more nuanced um, thought on that. The only thing I, the thing I wanted to add is that well, – probably not the only thing, Arnold, but it might be the only <laughs> thing uh, as we're near the end of this. But uh, I think it's also the case – it's obviously also the case that culture is endogenous. It also changes in response to economics, to prices, to uh, absolutely. Absolutely, know, to we've 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 sort of trained people to be this Homo economicus. We've sort of by encouraging it, and uh, you know, again, Deidre McCloskey said that would say that that encouragement was a good thing. That as long as people were anti-commerce and anti-capitalist. That held back uh, wealth creation and entrepreneurship. So, um, yeah, we, that I just want to reinforce. Yeah, the the culture is something that uh, is affected by many things, and including economic rhetoric. But I was thinking more just, uh, you know, when I when I am at a party and there are young people there, and I see them engrossed in their phones. Uh, and staring at the screen as they sit on the couch next to each other, possibly yeah. texting each other <laughs> right. uh, three feet away. I think, well, that was culturally unacceptable, unacceptable 20 years ago. Now it's acceptable. The pendulum may swing back, but certainly what we consider polite behavior uh, is in flux because of our access to these incredible toys. And it'll be interesting to see if there's a, a cultural backlash against some of this. There's a little bit of one right now. I don't know if it'll last or if it's real, but it seems to be. Yeah, um, um, you know, you, there's there's all sorts of rapid cultural change going on in a lot of areas that, uh, and pre- hopefully in a trial and error world, the errors will uh, will be discovered and will be discarded. My guest today has been Arnold Klang. Arnold, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.